Hello everyone, and you are listening to the last episode of Aussie Politics with Alex for 2020. And I know that I've taken a couple weeks off, but I'd just like to thank you all for the amazing support while I've been making this podcast. During a really, really rubbish year, it's been a really constant, fun thing for me to do that you guys have all supported me so much, so I just wanted to quickly say thank you. And while this also might be the last week of Aussie Politics with Alex, I'll come back next year, but it is also the last parliamentary sitting week for the year. And a lot's been happening here in Australia. We've had the inquiry into family law. We've had the war crime saga with the Australian Defence Force a couple weeks ago. We've had the University of Queensland's vaccine failing spectacularly due to giving false HIV positives. And we've also had both the US and the UK certifying two vaccine, I mean, a vaccine to use in both of those countries. So 2020 may strangely end off on kind of a high note. And while this may be the last episode, I'd like to take a couple minutes to talk about these issues, not in great detail. I'm going to keep this fairly casual. And then you guys have sent in a ton of questions. Well, actually, a ton by my standards, which is more than zero. And I'm going to answer them, um, which I thought would be fun. So let's get into it. We'll start with the inquiry into the family law system. Now, this, um, the minister, Christian Porter, uh, this week uh, announced that there would be a bill, which has already cleared the House of Representatives, um, to reform Australia's family law system. In a nutshell, the plan is that the family court, which was established by the Gough Whitlam government in 1975, would be merged with the federal circuit courts. Now, after the John Howard years, the, fa- the family court system in Australia has become more complicated. With the establishment of a federal magistrate's court, which handles divorces fairly quickly, simply, and efficiently, um, while leaving the the original family court as kind of a one-stop shop for everything family law-wise. Um, this could include custody arrangements, child support, etc. Now, considering that there have been a number of issues that a lot of people recognise in the family court, such as, um, in some cases, 18-month um, 18-month waiting times to have cases heard, and an extraordinarily high number of people um, appearing unrepresentative, um, unrepresented, that is to say, without a lawyer. Um, there is obviously some tinkering that needs to happen with the family law system. Now, in Parliament, Pauline Hanson's One Nation has said that they would support this bill, which leaves fairly only the Centre Alliance members that need to be convinced. Now, uh, one of them, Rex Patrick, has said that he wouldn't support the bill in its current form, but they have met, but he has managed to secure some amendments to the bill, and I wouldn't. It wouldn't be completely unreasonable for the government to agree to some more to get crossbench support to get their reform plan through. Um, so yes, that's family law. That's not really what I wanted to talk about, but I just thought I'd give you a quick fill-in. Now, this is the thing that's really interested me these cars past couple weeks. Um, the um, Scott Morrison has tried to pass certain industrial relations reforms. Industrial relations minister Christian Porter and the oh, sorry, um, before with the family law was actually the attorney general. Um, he it's still the same person because he holds both ministerial portfolios, but he was acting in the capacity as the attorney general. Now, the Industrial Relations Minister, Christian Porter, um, had put the bill on the House floor this week. Um, it set up a fight with the union movement and something that's going to get Labour really fired up, with some uh, Anthony Albanese calling the Prime Minister a, a Scrooge on the floor of the House of Representatives. Now, one of the key sticking points for Labour is that it would relax the so-called boot test, that is to say, the better-off overall test. 
which occurs during enterprise bar- enterprise bargaining agreements. That is to say, when an agreement is struck between a union and the employer, the Fair Work Commission tends to review it, and it will only be allowed to proceed if it is labelled as better off overall than the baseline awards. Now, that could be relaxed for certain businesses, and actually wasn't clear in the original draft of the bill. And Christian Porter wasn't really budging on that. But it got to the point where a journalist in an interview said that perhaps that he was contributing. He kind of... he kind of said, oh, what if the benchmark could be that if some businesses have had lost turnover, then they could demonstrate that to the Fair Work Commission, and that's how they would consider uh, the boot test to be scrapped or relaxed. Now, this kind of in, this kind of industrial relations reform could be the biggest industrial relations reform since John Howard's ill-fated work choices. Um, something like 2.1 million Australians, or 20% of the workforce, are currently paid under enterprise agreements which would, of course, be affected considering that businesses would want to take advantage of relaxed labour laws to get better deals out of their employers. Um, And it would also, another interesting thing that labour and the unions mostly support is that if a casual employee had been in a casual position for a year and six months, so 18 months, and they had been receiving regular hours, they could actually request, I mean, sorry, the employer needs to offer that employee a permanent job, be it part-time or full-time. So if they were receiving regular shifts, then that would offer a clear pathway to permanent employment. Because casuals have been hit by far the hardest during this um, crisis. Uh, most of the casual jobs haven't been able to work from home, considering that they tend to be lower-skilled work. And in retail and hospitality, many were sacked. Um, and more would have been sacked if it wasn't for JobKeeper. Now, so the Federal Omnibus uh, Industrial Relations Bill, uh, whether it gets passed on the House floor, and it's actually the Senate that's where it's being held up right now, um, is really going to get Labor fired up when they haven't really had a place in the limelight because of COVID. And a lot of oppositions worldwide have had this problem. And despite the fact that now there is something like, a, I think there's an 18-month window without any election politics except for Western Australia, it's actually an opportunity for the government and Labor to get together and to find out and nut out all the sticking points between this deal. So I thought that was really interesting, and I just thought I'd mention it. And if it's okay, I'd like to move on to the Q&A section, which shouldn't take too long. So, but if this is what you're into, feel free to end the podcast here. So I have four questions so far, and I'll try and do a couple more of these in the future, but I haven't had many people wanting to send in questions, so it really depends on whether you guys have enough questions to ask me. So first we had, what would happen if the Australian Greens actually managed to form a government? Now, this is actually a really interesting thing, because the Greens have actually already participated in a government. They're actually currently in a coalition government with the with Labour in the ACT currently. And they have been in, in the party of government before, at the federal level, during the Julia Gillard minority government. Um, but what if the Greens actually managed to get 76 seats in the House of Representatives and have their own Prime Minister, or perhaps have more seats than Labour? Now, currently, I don't really see a pathway for them to do that, uh, because right now, they'll, they only have one seat in the House of Representatives, which is held by their leader, Adam Bent. But if they were to become a major party, it would represent a really climactic and huge tumultuous change in Australian politics, which has been so set and defined by the two-party model. Um, I recently read a book called Inside the Greens, where... Um, their like their their first leader, his name's Bob Brown, 
um, said that the and Richard Di Natale as well before he resigned. So the goal was for the Greens to have a certain number of seats in the House of Representatives, was to gain seats in the House of Representatives, and to gain a couple of extra seats in the Senate. Now, while the Greens' primary vote has stayed rather stagnant recently, the twenty nine federal the twenty nineteen federal election was really make or break for them. Um, and they really didn't do too well. And I think the reason for that is, this is just me completely speculating here, but since Bill Shorten dragged the whole Labour Party further to the left, they kind of sucked up the Greens' oxygen. Um, if you think about it, Bill Shorten's policies were fairly left-wing, with reform in negative gearing and uh, heavy, like, really interesting climate change policy, republic movements, and really progressive policies, which didn't leave the Greens much space to differentiate themselves from Labour, which meant that they kind of cannibalized the Greens' primary vote. Now, me personally, I believe that after the COVID crisis ends, especially if Anthony Albanese is still the leader of the opposition, I suspect that the Greens' primary vote will grow in at the next federal election, um, considering that Albo will try to keep the Labour Party fairly centrist, I believe, which could leave some room for the Greens to take over certain inner-city electorates that have become much more progressive in recent years. Now, the only challenge I see with that is that Anthony Albanese, who is um, the leader of the opposition, of course, his electorate is one of the ones that is most likely, is one of the is one of the only few electorates in Australia that the two-party preferred vote is between Labour and the Greens. He is um, the electorate of Graindler, which is an inner-city electorate in Sydney, which covers something like Leichhardt, Dulwich Marrickville, that area, which is fairly progressive now, and in, in far cry from the working-class... Um, background that it was when Anthony Albanese grew up in the area. Um, so that could be the only thing that I can see that would force Anthony Albanese to play further to the left and further to the Greens, considering he's in such a progressive electorate, and I'm pretty sure he wouldn't want to lose his seat. But if he does, if he's no longer the leader, so if someone on the front bench, or formerly on the front bench, like Chris Bowen, or Joel Fitzgibbon was to become the party leader. I could see the Greens vote skyrocketing as many on the left wing of the Labour Party would desert Labour and instead join um, vote for the Greens, which would force Labour, I believe, into a minority government or a coalition arrangement with the Greens. Now, that's all speculation, and we're about two years away from a federal election as things stand. But yeah, that's something that I think I can really recommend that book, though, uh, Inside the Greens. But that's something that I'll keep my eye on as well. Um, I've got another question. What are your plans for next year? So next year with the podcast, I'd really like to take it a step further. This year I was just kind of really experimenting with what I wanted the podcast to be, and I've settled on a kind of format that I'm feeling pretty happy with. Um, I really enjoy the politics. I enjoyed talking about the US election, and I enjoyed um, really uh, gaining uh, my listenership, which has been really interesting. Now, I would like to have certain segments that recur throughout the podcast, such as a question time segment like they have on some other political podcasts that I quite like. And I would like to have maybe like a USA segment and some recurring special episodes. And I'd like to do a trivia episode at some point, but that all depends on whether I can get a guest for the podcast. But I'd really like to make the podcast more professional and better executed next year. Like, I'm always trying to improve. Um, I have another question. Uh, what is occurring politically between China and Australia? Now, I'll keep this brief because this is such a big topic. But Australia and China have been engaged in a really interesting trade dispute, um, which the government has tried to label as getting picked on Australia for being Australia. We are a really Western, democratic, liberal in the American sense, as in progressive country. And which is pretty much the stark contrast of China, who's fairly authoritarian, 
But considering that China's economy is now such a heavyweight and Australia is so dependent on trade from China, um, Trade Minister Simon Birmingham has really had his job cut out for him. And it's beginning to cloud Australia's relationship. Now, again, if I can reference another book that I've read, I have read a number of books. Actually, I'll give you two books. So if anyone's really interested, the book uh, China Matters, it really details why China is so important in today's um, society, especially as America's in, um, America's influence on the world stage continues to wane, which was accelerated but not caused, I might add, by the Trump years. And another great book called Fear of Abandonment, which details Australian pulse, foreign policy since 1942. And it postulates that Australia's foreign policy has always been defined by... Um, not being able to rely on large world powers. When the British Empire waned, we managed to struck, strike the ANZUS Treaty, which pretty much gave us an ironclad support in the form of the United States with their huge military. But as China continues to grow, it'll be interesting to see how the Western world is able to combat this. And I hope that answers your question, but I hope that you can read these books and do your own research a bit on this one, because that's a topic way too big for me to cover in as much detail as I'd like to. And one last question that I actually find a bit offensive. You know you're spelling Aussie wrong, right? Are you even Australian? Okay, well, yes, I'm Australian. I have been Australian. I was born in Australia. And yes, I know that I am spelling Aussie wrong in the conventional sense that most people would spell it A-U-S-S-I-E. Now, there is actually a reason for that. The reason why I spelt it Aussie is because I'd like to gain kind of a U.S., um, following, and I'm pretty sure that they spell it more phonetically than Aussie. <laughs> now, I'm not sure, but another thing that I did some research when I was starting my podcast, and if you type in the way that I've spelt Aussie, it's actually the first thing that comes up, which I really enjoyed that I could tell people, I oh, just type in Aussie, it'll come up just for my really up-and-coming podcast, which I thought was really interesting. And it made me feel really professional that I had a podcast that people could search up without me having to send them a link or a passcode or something. And on that note, guys, I'd just like to say one more huge thank you. I've had an amazing year, even through lockdown, and I'd like to keep this podcast going next year. You might hear from me in the holidays for some short episodes, for some little tidbits that I hope to keep you updated on, but this will be the last full-length episode of 2020. Now, I wish you all a better 2021, good riddance to 2020, follow the Instagram, five stars on Apple Podcasts, please send in your voice messages. And for the last time this year, this has been Alex, and thank you for listening to Aussie Politics with Alex. Bye-bye.